Let's pray together, shall we, before we're seated. Father, what great truths we've just sung about. What an amazing thing that you would love us so much to send your only son to die in our place. Lord, would you help us wrap our head around these things and would you show us how these things transform our lives as well. We thank you for your great grace and your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for our Bibles. And as we study now, would you use your word to encourage and strengthen us for yet another week to live for you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. As you're seated, why don't you grab your Bibles and, and let's turn back to Matthew chapter 15, where we left off some four weeks ago, five weeks ago. Someone told me when they entered the service this morning, they said, my little boy was saying on the way to church this morning, I wonder if Pastor Van feels like preaching yet or something like that. <laughs> so I have been out of the pulpit four weeks in a row. That is a pretty big break for a preacher. And it did feel good to come to church today and be ready to preach. We, of course, enjoyed uh, Steve Scheibner and our family Bible conference and camp out. Wasn't he a, a blessing to our church? I'll tell you. And then two weeks of vacation and then um, Mel Blackaby last Sunday. I trust that you were encouraged by his ministry. That was somewhat incidental in that they were up here for a wedding and the folks asked if their friend could preach. And we look forward to making new friends always and allowing God's servants to challenge us. I was wondering as I prepared this week and what a story we have uh, we're in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. I was just wondering, I wonder if you ever do spiritual profiling. I know that we're not supposed to profile. I also know that man looks on the outward appearance and that the Lord looks on the heart for sure. But let me tell you what I mean. Um, for example, the other day, and this doesn't happen real often, but on occasion through the years, I have found myself sitting in the waiting room of the Eastern Regional Jail. It's kind of a cement block type place, you know. And I was waiting. As a pastor, I don't have to schedule an appointment. I'm on the books there and I can go in and request a visit with the individual that I want to see. And I needed to encourage someone to challenge him from the word and pray with him and help cast some vision that God can get him going again. And, and he can, you know that? And uh, um, as I said, I had to wait until they connected with my individual and took him to the visitation room. And, and I did a little spiritual profiling. Now, this is just the guests that are coming in to visit their loved ones and friends who are in jail. They all have a story. Who knows what went on through the week and why they were there and you know, I just think you can look at people and you can just see sometimes the toll that sin is having on their lives. I know that we can't look into their hearts, but boy, there's a story and they walk in and you just wonder, wow. And you look at someone and when they first walked in, you thought they were old, but after they sat there for a while and you got to study them a little bit from a distance, you realized well, that person's younger than I am, I believe. It's just that sin has taken a toll. And I sat there and then they call my name and I walk through the metal detector and you go down a hallway and it's filled with little small cubes, just small rooms with a door and a thick glass with wire in it and a cement countertop and a plastic chair and you can talk through the glass, you can hear each other, it's a little bit muffled. 
And as I walk clear to the end, there's about 10 of those cubes and people are in there visiting and I look through and, and I just thought of the stories that were represented as I walked past each cube. And I thought, the people in this cube need Jesus. And the people in this cube need Jesus. And the people in this cube need Jesus. People just really need Jesus. Do you know that? People just really need the Lord in this world. It's unbelievable. We all do. I in no way am elevating myself in, in worth or significance above those folks. Jesus loved them and died equally for all of them like he did any of us in this room. You just become overwhelmed with the reality of the need that people have for the Lord. They didn't wake up in the morning to figure out how to just mess up their lives. They just, they just did what sinners do. They sinned and they self-destruct and they walk down a path that they never thought they would be on. And they find themselves in circumstances that they want to get out of. And that's exactly where we find the lady in our story today. Somehow sin and Satan have impacted her household in an incredible way. She's a most precious lady. It's not the most familiar story in the New Testament. It is a true story. Make sure you know that. It happened one day in the life of our Lord Jesus. And we're in Matthew chapter 15. And you need to know before we read our text that, that this point in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, the break between verse 20, and remember that's kind of, I call that the five guys passage. That's where it's not what goes into your mouth that bothers you. You know, you can have five guys in Mountain Dew. That's not so much what you have to worry about. What you have to worry about is what comes out of you. Remember Jesus had almost like verbal fisticuffs with the Pharisees. They pointed at him in chapter 15. Why don't your disciples wash their hands? And he points at them and says, why do you just disregard Scripture and make up your own rules? And that was where that Corbin passage came from. And it was kind of interesting stuff, wasn't it? How they distorted and took away from the Word of God, even to the disgracing and the lack of care of their own parents, and yet thinking themselves to be spiritual. And yet they were pointing at the disciples, you don't wash your hands. Who cares? It's what comes out and... What you need to know is that that all happens in Galilee. And in verse 21, Jesus is no longer in Galilee. And as Bible students break down the Gospel of Matthew into sections, this is a marking point of a new section sort of starting up. There's a number of things that are happening. And when we read Mark's account in just a minute in chapter 7, you're going to recognize that one of the reasons Jesus left Galilee now, and this is where the, the balance of his works of miracles and his earthly ministry, much of it took place there in Galilee. But you also know from what we've been through, he's fed the 5,000. He's been overwhelmed with ministry. In fact, the disciples are going to disgrace themselves in this passage. And I think part of it is just people fatigue. They're just tired of being around needy people. Because everywhere Jesus goes now, he's just swamped and swarmed with people. So he's going to leave Galilee and he's actually going to go into a region then uh, to the north that is Gentile country. There, he's going to encounter this precious lady. We don't know her name. We don't know much about her, but we know her heart. And I'll tell you, she has a heart worth emulating in humility before the Lord. Let's read our account in Matthew chapter 15. It begins with verse 21, and our text goes to verse 28 today. 
And Jesus went away from there. That would be Galilee where he had been ministering and where he had been encountering the Pharisees. And he went away from there and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. That's awkward, isn't it? Don't you think he should have said something right then? He's just silent. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. That's a great prayer. She acknowledges his Messiahship. Son of David, have mercy on me. Just quiet. It's pretty interesting to picture it. He did not answer her a word, verse 23. And his disciples come and they begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Would you just get rid of this lady? Do whatever it takes. Get her out of here. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, this great three-letter prayer that everyone should have in their repertoire, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I don't care what lost sheep you were sent to take care of. Help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Kabam. Let's go to Mark chapter 7. His account is very short as well, but I want you to see just a couple things. And he calls her the Syrophoenician woman. She's Canaanite, Phoenician, and she's from the region of Syria, even the region of Syria today. She's a Gentile. It begins with verse 24 in Mark's gospel in chapter 7. And I want you to, I'll point out just a couple things that Mark adds for us that is interesting and helpful for us to, to grasp the picture here. And from there he arose, Jesus did, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Okay, so Mark clues us in. And if you get your outline going, some of you like to use the outline that's in the bulletin. Notice number one is that what Jesus is doing is he's looking for a place to rest. Number one, he's looking for a place to rest. He's going to this house and he didn't want anyone to know. He's been covered up with people in ministry. He needs to rest. He's also been having ever increasingly difficult encounters with the Pharisees. He doesn't want them to know where he is. He knows that, that Herod has killed John the Baptist and he's likely to come after his head now. And he knows that it's not quite time to go to Jerusalem and be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness on the cross for the sins of the world. And so he's getting away and he's separating. So he goes to this house, but yet look what Mark says. Yet he could not be hidden. He couldn't hide anywhere. Wherever he was, they found him, man. Wherever he is, they would find him. But immediately, so he, he's thinking he's going to a place where he can rest. It's an empty house, a place of refuge. 
And immediately it says, so right away they found him and there was a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. She heard of him and she came and she fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. You'll notice in the ESV translates in Matthew 15, it says that she is demonically oppressed. Mark says that she was possessed. We'll talk a little more about that in a minute. And he said to her, let the little children, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Wow. We're back in Matthew chapter 15. Let's do the story here. This is a great story. I love this lady. She's such a role model to us for her humility and her faith. I love the way our Lord Jesus interacts with her so appropriately. He respects her. He does not disrespect her. It looks like he puts her down. It is just remarkable how this whole exchange takes place. If you like to track along with the notes, you may do that. You will not offend me if you don't do that. I can't really see everybody from here. Well, really, I pretty much can, but um, I don't like you to know that. And uh, um, the notes are helpful for me to just have some accountability with the audience and This third service is a little bit easier. In the first two, got to move along and make sure we can let out pretty much on time. We notice that our Lord Jesus, though, in chapter 15, verse 21 of Matthew, is looking to rest. So he's breaking away to do this. He's leaving the region of Galilee, and he's going up into this Gentile territory. There, number two, he encounters immediately a pagan woman. A pagan woman. The reason I call her a pagan is because she was. She was a descendant of the Canaanites. It says that she was a Canaanite. If you were to take time to look back up in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 2, you would see there that she was listed in a number of nations that God had condemned to death. In fact, he had told the Israelites that when they entered the promised land, they were to utterly wipe them out as an offering to himself. And that seems really bizarre to think of God like that. It is a really interesting topic to think about how God judges people. A lot of people don't like that about God. Let me just comment briefly so that you're not upset and letting your mind go there too much. It is upsetting. I'll tell you what's upsetting. It's this spiritual truth of the universe that we've talked about many times here. It is that the wages of sin is always death. That is a spiritual law of the universe. So if you sin, you're going to die. And what you find in the Old Testament was a time frame when God was working through a nation Israel as his representatives on earth. And one of the things he did was he allowed them to implement his righteous judgment upon sinful people for whom their time was up. You see, everybody's only got so much time and then it's over. There's a day of accountability. This is a wake up call for us. The wages of sin is death in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's very graphic. Part of the reason it's so graphic is so that we will understand how much God hates sin. I mean, that's where we read in the historical account in the Kings, right? Where, or 1 Samuel, where, and Samuel ag- hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. And here's the man of God. This guy sins. 
God says, kill him. He takes a sword and hacks him up. He's dead. I mean, you come to church some Sunday and there's a big old stain in the carpet. What happened there? Oh, Pastor Van hacked this guy up this week. He had enough. It was over. Then we don't do that. Now, there are significant groups of people who have faith, religion, religions that do hack people up and cut their throats. But we don't do that. In the Old Testament, they did do that. And they did it for one reason. They did it because God's righteous judgment is sure. You need to mark that down. You can go home and carve it in a tree. The wages of sin is always death. And in the Old Testament, God was limiting time frames with people. Now, for the Canaanites, for example, he was still merciful. He still revealed himself to them. And in fact, if you read back in Abraham's account in Genesis, when they first encounter the Canaanites and he gives the land, the promised land, he says, but you can't go in yet because my patience has not run out yet with those who are there. And in fact, it took 400 more years before God's patience ran out. You see, he, he knew he was going to judge them for their sin. And he was just watching to see what was ha- what happened. You remember when the prophet Jonah went walking around the, the city of Nineveh? What was he crying out? In three days, God's time clock is up. In three days, it's over and the wages of your sin is death. Do you know that all of us live at some point where there's only three days left? And God's time is up. And the wages of your sin will be death just as sure today as it was in the Old Testament. But that's the beautiful thing of the New Covenant. And when we turn to the New Testament, what do we find? Do we find God removing His rule of the wages of sin is death? No. You know what He did? He provided someone to take the death penalty for us. How slick is that? That's what the cross is all about, friends. Listen, that's what God loved us so much that He sent Christ to take the death penalty of our sin on Himself so that we don't have to do it. And He substituted it in. That's what we just sang about in His robes for mine. That He substituted in and He took my sin and paid the death penalty for it and He gave me His righteousness so that I can go scot-free and have everlasting life. Amen. Praise God. I really love that. Because I probably would have been hacked up with a sword. Or the ground would have opened up and swallowed you or a fish or something to get God's attention. God gets your attention. He'll get you one way or another. The wages of sin is always death. And, and so that's who this woman is. And she would have worshipped the stars and the sun and the moon. She would have been part of a, his, a history in her family history. They would have worshipped the Baals. There were residual effect of some of those pagan religions. And in the Canaanite, and it's partly why the Jews hated them, because they did not acknowledge the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the one true creator God of the universe. They had all these false gods. They even did infant sacrifice and burn babies, and it was horrible. Somewhere along the line, we don't know her story. We don't know her story. Somewhere along the line, this lady had had enough of the Canaanite gods. And she figured out that something was going on with Jesus. And she wanted to get to him as fast as she could. You notice that she comes to Jesus, number three, with a plea. Number two, we encounter this pagan woman who, apart from our Lord Jesus, is the key player in the story. And her daughter, number three, is she comes, the lady, the Canaanite woman, comes with a plea for help. 
She comes with a plea for help. Notice verse 22 in our text. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and she was crying. I take this to be a weeping, tearful cry as well as crying out with her voice. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me. You know, mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve. Would you please hold back this stuff from us? Grace, on the other hand, is receiving what we don't deserve. And this woman comes and she acknowledges that Jesus could hold back this demon. Would you have mercy on my daughter? Would you have mercy on my home? Would you please, please interrupt the incredible nonsense that's going on in my home? Some of you have prayed that before. God, would you have mercy on my child? And she calls him the the son of David. She knows who he is. She knows that Messiah, the Christ, is to come through the lineage and heritage of David and to rule and reign on David's throne. She is acknowledging that he is the Christ. It is most fascinating. You need to understand that just in her words and Jesus hears every word so that you don't misunderstand how Jesus speaks to her in the middle part of our story and then you will see that he completely affirms her at the end of our story. She comes with this plea for help and her plea for help has to do with number four, a possessed girl, a possessed girl. Notice the end of verse 22. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely, there's the word, oppressed, by a demon. I think we should take just a second and talk about demons and oppression and possession. It is kind of weird stuff. Now, we recognize in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the life and times of Jesus, that there was a significant amount of demon possession that went on. Now, I take it that this girl is actually possessed. I'm not sure. I didn't take the time to study out why the ESV translates the word in Matthew 15, oppression. Okay, so when we think, when we think of oppression, we are thinking of an outside influencing upon someone. When we think of possession, this is, the, this is when an evil personality has taken over and is indwelling an individual. I have been in situations where my skin begins to crawl. That's a, a figure of speech. And you know what I mean? And you get goosebumps. That's another figure of speech. And you're standing there and you're like, this place is so dark and so creepy right now. And I can feel the evil. And in fact, I'm getting my back against a wall here and I'm just watching. And then I start saying, Lord, would you please just cover me right now with your, your hand of protection. I am your child. It is in the name of Jesus that I stand here. And you're, you are encountering darkness. Either people who are into witchcraft or, or people who are into uh, Satan worship or, or people who don't even know what they're doing, but they have just adopted things that Satan has promoted in our world that are so dark and disgusting and sinful and wrong and evil that you can just feel it. And we would say at that moment, there is an oppression here. We are, I can feel the oppression I take it in this situation that this girl was demon-possessed. We have many examples of this in the New Testament, and I don't want to take a long time with it, but let me just kind of 
remind us of a few things. One of the greatest examples of this, of course, is that remarkable story in Mark chapter 5 of the crazy man at Gadaria. Remember him? He lived up in the tombs and he lived up in the rocks above the Sea of Galilee when Jesus gets out of the boat. And we learn a lot about demon possession from that guy's story. But know that not all circumstances in the life of Christ, when he encountered people who needed healing, it wasn't always because of demon possession. But sometimes it will say that person had a demon. In this situation with this little girl, she evidently would cry out. She would flail about. Maybe she would have have fits and rage and temper tantrums and throw things and evidently lose control of herself. She was disrupting her household. She was making uh, utterances that were, uh, you know, just horrible. And it was just killing this household. It was killing this mother's heart to watch her little girl. Mark says, little girl, a young girl, maybe prepubescent, possessed by this demon. Well, when we look at, the, at some of the uh, stories that we encounter of demon possession in the Gospels, Um, we can conclude a number of things. Let me just list them off. Probably too fast for you to write even. Demon possession, we recognize in the New Testament, is when an evil personality has taken control of the individual. It's best understood that these are demons. They are not Satan himself. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not omnipotent. Demon's source is evidently from Angels in heaven when Satan or Lucifer, and I believe that's the source of Satan, and that Lucifer is Satan, that he rebelled in pride against God. He was kicked out of heaven and evidently swept with him numerous angelic beings who apart from the presence of Christ and his heavenly kingdom became demons on this earth. Some demons were put in dungeons and and are held there until the ends of times. Others are held already for their eternal destruction. Others will be released during the great tribulation period. Others evidently have some ability to roam to and fro. And when we look at the New Testament, we see that it was quite common Not only was it quite common, but it was normal for these demons when a person was demon-possessed that they would overwhelm the individual and and the person would have uncontrollable behaviors. I mean, they would chain up that guy in, in Gadaria up in the tombs and he would break the chains. And it wasn't his strength, it was the demons could make him that strong. They were able, demons were able to force involuntary sounds and language out of the person that they possessed. I've already referenced that not all afflictions were demonic in their source, but many were. Demons are capable of answering when addressed. We see that, that Jesus addressed the demons in the crazy man there. He, but more than that, demons recognized who Jesus was. We even know from James chapter 2 that demons know who Jesus is and believe that he is the Son of God, but they don't believe with a saving faith. In fact, demons are already judged. Demons cannot be saved. Demons cannot be redeemed. They are set for judgment. They've already had their chance. They're not like human beings with a soul that Jesus died for. Jesus didn't die for demons. He died for people. That's how special people are. They are not only capable of speaking out like they they recognize Jesus and Jesus, son of the most high God. They recognize him. 
Jesus would talk with them and say, what is your name? Remember, he said he was legion. That meant there were many demons in him. A legion in the Roman army was 6,000 foot soldiers. Were there 6,000 demons in this guy? I don't know. Was there, how many demons were in the girl in our story? I don't know. Maybe one, maybe two, maybe a dozen. I don't know. doesn't say. It can be one. It can be multiple. It never tells us how the, de- how the individual becomes possessed by demons. We're never told that. Did they, did they mess with things they should have never tampered with and open up themselves somehow? There's no real indication that demons can forcibly come upon a person. I don't know. I don't know. I sometimes wonder if we're not seeing an uprise in in demonic activity in our own culture. The norm in the United States of America for most of my lifetime is that you don't encounter too much that is recognizable as demonic activity unless you're with people who are committed to witchcraft, which I've dealt with in my youth ministry in the past, and I've even been invited to their services and things. And say, yeah, I'm going to pass today. I don't, I don't go there. I believe it's true. I believe they were possessed. I believe they did signs and wonders in Satan's name right in Martinsburg. And here they are, you know, it's like in our culture, materialism was enough to distract us from faith in Jesus Christ through the years, wasn't it? Pride and arrogance and materialism in the United States. And as, as the slow flush occurs and we spiral down in the darkness of our society and our commitment to evil and our, and our anti-God thinking in our society, we have to believe that we're seeing an uprise of demonic activity in the behaviors that we're reading about. Even on the front pages of our paper, you sometimes you just have to think, man, that person must have been demon-possessed. But it is an example of how, how wicked, sinful people can behave. And then when Satan has his way, it's unspeakable. Demons evidently are territorial. Uh, when those legion of demons came out of the crazy man at Gadaria, they begged Jesus, don't send us out of the region. And they also don't like to be disembodied. They begged to be put in the pigs. The pigs then jumped in the water and drowned. What happened to the demons after that? I don't know. I don't think they died. They know that they're going to be judged. They have a fear and awe of God. And they recognize Jesus for who he is. I just know that this woman had a situation on her hands that was out of control. She could do nothing about what was going on in her little girl. As she thrashed about and yelled and hollered and carried on in her fits. And so we have this plea for help for a possessed girl. But we get, number five, a puzzling response. Notice the puzzling response that we get. And this is the end of verse 23. He did not answer her a word. He was just silent. And then his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Number six is a prejudiced request. I think based upon the fact that she was a Canaanite and a Gentile, the disciples put that alongside their weariness and fatigue of ministry and being overwhelmed with people and the, the demands of people ministry that they had been experiencing for evidently weeks or even months. They were filled up. They were tired of it. And Lord, just get rid of this woman. We don't know if they wanted her, Jesus, to cast out the demons so that she would leave. Like, do what she says so that she'll leave. 
But I think it was largely a prejudicial response. They didn't like this woman. They didn't want this woman around. Furthermore, they were Jewish men, and men in this culture at large don't even like women to begin with in that way. But what about this puzzling response back up at verse 5? What, what about this silence? Was Jesus being hard-hearted? The disciples were hard-hearted and cruel. How many of you would ever raise your hand and say Jesus could be hard-hearted and cruel? I would suggest don't raise your hand. <laughs> What's going on? Well, we know by the affirmation that he gives her at the end of the story that he was in process with her. He's leading her somewhere. He's showing her about her own faith. He's showing her who he is. You know, when you stop and think about it, the silence of God and the silence of Christ is actually something that we see regularly in Scripture. Where God says He's going to do something or God asks people to trust Him and then He just like disappears. I mean, think about Abraham and Sarah, for example, in the Old Testament in Genesis. They're very old. They're beyond childbearing years. And what does God say? You're going to have a baby. I'm going to start a whole nation. Abraham, come out of your tent. Look at the stars up above. I'm going to make of you a nation that is more populated than, than even the stars in the heaven or the sand on the seashore. And he says, yeah, right, God. And what about how many years later God hasn't done a thing? God, you promised, and then now you haven't said a thing. You're just silent. You're not answering my prayer. What's going on? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get Hagar, one of my wife's servant girls, and we'll have a family with her. You think he jumped a little soon there? Oh, you don't get impatient with God? He promised. What was it, 10 or 12 years later before Sarah got pregnant? I forget. But it's a long time. Lord, you're not answering my prayer, and you promised. Just be silent. Just wait and see. A little bit of a test of faith, huh? A little bit of, are you going to just get angry and throw a temper tantrum? Or do you really believe what you just said? That I am the Lord, the son of David. Or are you just using words so that you try to get me to do my magic wand? How about Jesus in another occasion in John chapter 11 when Mary and Martha's brother was sick. It was Lazarus. And they sent a, an envoy, a messenger to Jesus who wasn't that far away, just a few hours jog away. And they said, they sent him a message, Lord, the one you love is sick. Come quickly now. If you would come, Lord, you could heal him. And what does he do? He waits two more days until they have to watch their brother. And he's gone. And where are you, Lord? Lord, had you been here? Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And it says in John chapter 11, it's wonderful stuff, that Jesus knew what he was going to do. And he says to his disciples there, and for your sake, he said, that you may believe I am glad that I was not present. So that you may believe he's working their faith, isn't he? He wants People to trust Him and come to Him in faith. What about when Jesus is asleep in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the dark, in the night, and grown men are so afraid that they're going to drown? Well, do you think Jesus didn't know the boat was rocking? Do you think Jesus didn't know it was storming? What did He do? He just slept. And they finally 
shake him awake and say, Lord, you have to do something. He just waited until what? Until they had to be pushed to the limit a little bit there. It's just the way he does. And it's a common thing. You think about it throughout Scripture. God often just kind of puts us on hold and watches us live by faith and not by sight. He just kind of watches us trust his word instead of seeing his hand at work immediately. You just got to believe me. He's not toying with us. He's not being cruel. It's just that's how important faith is. Well, let's uh, speed through the rest here. It's pretty interesting. We'll get the point of it. Verse 23, his disciples begged him, send her away. Verse 24, that was number six, the prejudiced request, get rid of her. Number seven, there's this personal rejection, a personal rejection in verse 24. He says to the disciples, but he's talking about the woman and she's right down at his feet. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said that in chapter 10 of Matthew as well. The primary mission of Christ was to come to the Jews. The spillover of that, that is why the Jews are a blessing to the Gentile world, is that Jesus came for the Gentiles too. It is interesting, by the way, in case I forget to say it later, uh, for example, in the boat on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night when the storm was going and they wake Jesus up and don't you care if we drown? What did Jesus say? And almost always to the disciples and to the Jews, what does he say to them? Where is your faith? Where's your faith? Watch and see what he's going to say to a Gentile. There's like this personal rejection. I don't do Canaanites. I don't do Gentiles. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. He's kind of like establishing a theological, this is what the rule is. But he knows he's getting ready to break the rule. You know, when you know the rules, you can break the rules, only like in accounting, something like that. He did not answer a word. He's testing her faith. He's not being cruel. Send her away. Verse 24, the personal Rejection ends up with a pitiful picture here. Look what we have. Verse 25, there's a pitiful picture. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. The reason it's a pitiful picture because the, the Greek word where it says she knelt before him is a word that means she got all the way down. And imagine in our culture, if a woman came to a man and put her face down by his feet and she's crying and weeping. I mean, she is so contrite. She is as low as she can get. He's looking down on the top of her head. Her face is by her feet. And she says those three words. Lord, help me. I, in other words, I don't care what household of sheep you came to rescue. Help me. And she's down on her face it's a pitiful picture. And then he, with a barb, is seemingly like a barb. I, I, I wrote it down as a pointed truth. Number nine, in this pitiful moment, number nine, he speaks of a pointed truth to her. It's kind of edgy. And he answered, when she says, Lord, help me, he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa. You know that she understood exactly what he was saying? She understood that the Jews were the children and that the Gentiles were the dogs. 
She also understood, as did his whole audience, that this dog is not a big ravenous dog, like is referenced in the New Testament sometimes, like you got to watch out for those dogs that will come and destroy your church, like wolves or ravenous dogs. It's a derogatory term. Jews use that derogatory dog term. Some, you dog, was a very derogatory term. The dog in the Greek here, in the, in the grammar, is a, it's translated literally, a house pet dog. You could write that in, it would be literal, a house pet dog. You know your little yippy dogs that you love? I go to ring your doorbell and they start yipping and I can hear their toenails come skidding across the hardwood floors and they can't stop and then they slam into the door. And I start thinking about thoughts of what I'd like to do to that dog and, and I sin right there on your front porch. But you love yippee dogs. That's what he's talking about. You feed them. My next door neighbor had a yippee dog when I was growing up. And she would she'd get the dog to have you talk to me, talk to me. And we'd get ice cream cones. And the, the, the dog's name was Lucky. And it was Lucky. But um, <laughs> that, that dog, she would let, my neighbor lady would let that dog lick her ice cream. And then she would lick her ice cream. And she would lick her ice cream. Lick her ice cream. I'm ready. It's like, man, ain't no dog in my house going to get to lick my ice cream. <laughs> In this pointed truth, we're the Jews. I came for the Jews. I didn't come for the lost. I came for the lost household and the lost sheep of Israel. I didn't come for you, woman. And it's not right to give the bread that the children eat to the little yippy dogs down there, the little pet house dogs that's under the table. And you have this pointed truth. And she comes back, number 10, with the perfect reply. She was so on it. Look at this. And she said, verse 27, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Lord, could I just get some of your crumbs? I don't need bread. I just need some crumbs. I need Jesus' crumbs right now to change my house and to transform my life and to heal my daughter. I just need what you have. And that's when Jesus heard what he wanted to hear. It's like a little pet dog can eat bread at the bottom of the table legs that fall off or somebody sneaks to them. All I need, Lord, is a little bit from your table. And you can see what she's saying. She's saying in her faith and in her humility, I don't need, I don't need everything here. I just need you to say the word, a little crumb of a word, and you can heal them. You're Jesus. My daughter needs Jesus today. Just, just, just do that. And he loves her. You know he does. And then Jesus answered, oh, woman, great is your faith. You see, when he's with his disciples, you know what he says? Where's your faith? When he's with this pitiful Canaanite woman, he looks at her and he says, you have such great faith. Why? Because, Lord, I don't need a bit. I need a crumb to heal. You, all you need to do is let one of your crumbs drop from your table and you can transform my daughter. What do we take away from a story like this? It's a powerful moment, verse 28. That's the powerful moment. Immediately when she says that, the Lord has heard what he wants to hear, and she's healed. The daughter is healed. I don't know. Mark says that she was on her bed when she was in her bed when the mother gets home. I don't know if they had been, you know, she she had been sleeping and, you know, having fits or whatever. And if somebody were there watching, don't you think she just went into rest. What a great moment. Powerful. So what do we do with this story? It's a wonderful story, true story of our 
wonderful Lord Jesus and this precious lady. Um, Let's just click off a few thoughts in conclusion. We must go. When I was studying this and working it over, you know, I thought that we can't miss this point, that people have problems. We're always looking for people without problems. I don't think they exist, for one thing. They don't exist. And people have problems. And we need to be like Jesus, not like the disciples, right? But what we need to be driven with and eaten up with and just overwhelmed with is that people need Jesus. People need the Lord. They have problems and there is no other answer. I was in Food Lion the other night, just wasn't long ago. And we often frequent the food line over here. And it was late, and I don't know what I needed. Janet sent me, and I decided to go late. It was right before they closed, and the place was pretty empty. And I grabbed a couple gallons of water, whatever we needed, milk. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure I grabbed a little apple pie. (laughs) Well, if you go to the store late at night, you ought to get a reward, shouldn't you? And I went to the checkout counter, and um, there was a girl there. Now, I want to tell you, in no inappropriate way did I look at her. But she was an attractive girl. And she had a niceness about her, and she was so broken, I could tell. She had put the oddest kinds of markings on her body. And she had poked her body with holes and filled those holes with items. And she just had a look about her that I thought sin is overwhelming this girl. And it's a shame because I can tell she's a really nice girl. And I think she's even a beautiful girl. And I prayed for her as I walked away. I didn't know how to communicate Christ really to her. I guess you just tell them, right? Here you see him all the time. Don't you see him all the time? Your spiritual profiling, and you know they need Jesus. That's what they need. That's for real. That's our job, is to present Christ. Well, very quickly, parents will do anything for their kids. I get that out of this story, do you? Parents will do anything for their kids, and that's all pretty good stuff. You know, we got dance going on and soccer, and we got judo and karate and cello and violin and trumpet and this and that and everything else. And I really need my kids to do this stuff. And in the meantime, I'll get them an iPad because that'll make them read quicker or whatever. And it just occurred to me about this lady. You know, she was just driven for her daughter. You know how that feels. And, and what our kids need more than dance and judo and trombone and whatever they get, and iPads, they need the crumbs from the master's table. They need, just, they need Jesus to spill over into their lives. They're going to get that from us. And kids are not robots, let me tell you. I know. And, and all we can do is fight against Satan for our kids, right? And get them to Jesus that some crumbs would fall, man. They need Jesus. Be in Sunday school. Be at camp. Get them in youth group. Get them, do everything you can to encourage. And I know you do. Jesus never rejects the marginalized. 
and note that this was a woman. I thought that was a good lesson for us. It's a little bit similar to number one, but I noticed that, you know, this was a marginalized woman and Jesus did not neglect her. The disciples tried to. We must be like Jesus. Finally, uh, persistence in prayer is biblical. I think that you have to get out of this story the persistence of this woman. She did not give up. Who are you praying for that you're tempted to give up? Do not give up. Get your face down at Jesus' feet and pray and pray and never give up. It's biblical. Read those passages. I had spent, planned to spend some time there, but it's beyond gone. Pursuing Christ in faith believing is also essential. Pursuing Christ in faith believing is essential. And that's what this woman teaches us, that we are to live by faith. We're not to live by sight. We're not to live by our feelings. We're to live by faith, believing that this is Jesus, the son of David. And if just one of your crumbs would fall down, this little yippy dog would eat it and everything would change. We need Jesus. People need Jesus, right? I think this is a precious lady, don't you? I love this lady. And what she must have gone through with her daughter... It's unthinkable. And then to walk home. And will you live with that kind of hope that one day you're going to walk home and some kid of yours will have found a crumb at the table of the master and they're going to be like the crazy man at Gadaria, clothed and in their right mind. Don't give up. Live in faith believing. Don't stop praying. Let's stand in closing prayer. So, Father, we just dedicate the week to you as we go out. We will be distracted. We will have many responsibilities. We'll have some pressures and some emergencies. Would you show us how to live by faith? Would you show us how to just keep our face down by your feet? Would you show us how to just live for Jesus here? And, Lord, for those here today who could relate to this woman in a special way, because they have children that are maybe in Satan's hold, Would you deliver them from their bondage? Would you release them? Today, wherever they are, may the crumbs of the gospel be eaten with delight by these children. And may it transform their lives. Father, would you help Fellowship Bible Church to be a place that never marginalizes the marginalized. Help us never to shoo people off in prejudice. Help us to just get people under the master's table. Show them the crumbs. Accomplish your purposes in us. Cover us. Protect us. We commit the the day and the week to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.